electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. It's the week for earnings geeks. One third of the S&P 500 and almost half of the Dow stocks will report first quarter performance. What we'll learn about the U.S. economy. J.P. Morgan's Gabriela Santos. We're not expecting any kind of crisis in terms of earnings contraction. It's just speaking to some downside here in the U.S. NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell stepping down due to an inappropriate relationship at work, looking ahead to our parent company's next chapter with media analyst Rich Greenfield. You do wonder whether as new management sort of takes over, whether there is sort of a scaling back of ambitions. Plus, state leaders targeting climate-conscious investing, holding financial stakes, where else? In fossil fuel companies. CNBC reporter Brian Schwartz with new information. There really is no strong regulations at the state level on who and how these folks can own and purchase stocks. It's Monday, April 24th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. On this week's Squawk Planner, we've got several data points on the docket. We'll be getting Case-Shiller home prices tomorrow morning. On Wednesday, it's durable goods orders for the month of March. On Thursday, we'll get a look at jobless claims and our first look at GDP in the first quarter. And then on Friday, the March read on personal income and spending. Also a critical week for earnings. You've got a third of the S&P 500 set to report and nearly half of the Dow. Today, Coca-Cola reports First Republic Bank will report after the closing bell. Obviously, that's pretty important given what's been happening with the regional banks and that one in particular. Tomorrow, we've got UPS, 3M, General Motors, General Electric, McDonald's and Verizon. And that's all before we get the opening bell. After the close tomorrow, we'll be hearing from Alphabet, Microsoft and Visa. Two highlights on Wednesday. You've got Boeing before the bell, Meta Platforms coming after the close. On Thursday morning, Caterpillar, Honeywell, Merck, and our parent company, Comcast. On Thursday afternoon, Amazon and Intel. And then on Friday morning, we'll be hearing from ExxonMobil and Chevron. Wow. That was quite a summary, Becky. Yep. Thanks. A lot going on. Just glanced at what was on the screen there. That wasn't even in the pro- She just did that all... Uh, off the top of my head. Off the top of your head. Yeah. NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell leaving his role after admitting a, quote, inappropriate relationship with a woman at the company. Julia Borston joins us now with more. Julia. Andrew, that's right. Yesterday afternoon, Comcast announced that Jeff Schell, the CEO of CNBC's parent NBC Universal, would be leaving immediately after 19 years at the company following an investigation into that relationship. Comcast CEO Brian Roberts announced that Shell's senior team would report to Comcast President Mike Kavanaugh. A source close to the situation tells CNBC that the company has no plans to immediately replace Shell and that Roberts will get more involved with overseeing the NBCU business. Now, 
Michelle took the top job just before the pandemic shut down the company's movie studios and theme parks. He launched Peacock in mid-2020, and though it's still far smaller than its rival streamers and still losing money, it has beat expectations in terms of subscriber additions in recent months. And he leaves just as the Super Mario Brothers movie became the biggest animated film in history. So now the company faces a slew of new challenges. Economic uncertainty raises concerns about an advertising contraction and accelerated cord cutting. A looming expected writer strike could shut down all movie and TV production for months, which would of course impact fall TV show launches. Plus, and perhaps most important, there's the negotiation with Disney over Hulu's future and the question of whether Hulu goes to Disney or to NBC Universal and then what that means for Peacock. Comcast is set to report its quarterly results on Thursday morning, and that call will be closely watched for any insight of where these things can go from here. Andrew? Uh, Julie, in terms of just how this story plays out and the implications for those deals, what's your take? You know, it's really interesting because there's been a lot of talk about how maybe, you know, Jeff Shell had been investing a lot into Peacock to try to accelerate its growth. And now there's this big question of what Peacock is in the future and whether Peacock is combined with Hulu. So I think Mike Cavanaugh and Brian Roberts are the ones that would ultimately really be making that Hulu decision anyways and negotiating that deal. And so the fact that Kavanaugh is in this role now um, makes sense. He has the relationships with the division heads. Um, he's been working closely with them. And I wouldn't be surprised if the company really takes its time to actually replace um, that CEO role because Kavanaugh is already in, in talks with them and in such close contact with them. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether they elevate one of those division heads into that CEO role, um, whether they potentially even bring in someone from the outside or whether they solidify Kavanaugh um, as perhaps permanently running that division. So that's something to watch. But I think this Hulu decision is, is going to be a complicated one and ultimately will be probably negotiated between Brian Roberts and Bob Iger. Julia, uh, it's nice to see you this morning in L.A. Appreciate it. Thank you. Joining us now to talk about what's next for NBC Universal, Rich Greenfield, Lightshed Partners. Uh, Rich, what was your initial take here? And I, I'm looking at it from the perspective of, of the bench at, at, at Comcast and, and NBC Universal. Is there, if you were a shareholder, is there something to be concerned about or as, as uh, Comcast said they, they have a lot of confidence in the, the management team that can fill in here, I guess, meanwhile, Kavanaugh, whomever, and then um, long term, I don't know where they go. Yeah, look, I think obviously these are, it's unfortunate and obviously upsetting, but I think, um, you know, when, and it was certainly a shock, but I think the, when you step back and you go, this is a fairly decentralized company. And from what, you know, if you look at sort of divisionally, I mean, I think we were on air with you just a few weeks ago, Joe, talking about Super Mario and why this was going to be sort of such a big event for NBC Universal. And look what's happened. I mean, there is no doubt in our mind, if you look at what's happened over the last few weeks, who's the animation leader right now? I mean, Universal Studios is by far and away crushing it in animation relative to Disney and its peers. And so I think from the standpoint of film, film is probably, this is probably one of the best film years we've seen out of NBC Universal. And so I don't think that's a problem. Obviously the theme park business has been incredible under Mark Woodbury. Uh, you know, I think, you know, business is at an all time high. We've seen that out of Disney as well. The theme park business is, is really doing amazing. 
The cable network business, obviously, it's facing all the headwinds that you and everyone else uh, on Squawk Box obviously know the realities of. While obviously Jeff Shell had long histories in many of these businesses, I think there is a lot of executive depth at NBC Universal. I think the only question it sort of brings up is, and I'm sure you've heard this speculation for quite some time, is that ultimately Warner Brothers Discovery and NBC Universal would merge at some point. You, you wonder when you see executive transitions like this, does that speed the you know the ability for something like that to happen in 2024 or not? I think that's the one thing that'll, that'll probably be be on people's minds over the next couple of weeks as they think about the implications of this. You talked about some of the success that NBC Universal has had, especially in films and others. But uh, do you do you ascribe that or or give um, was, was that Jeff Shell's initiatives that did that? In that respect, will he will he be missed? What about streaming? Was uh, is streaming going well? Could uh, was, Jeff, was that going the way NBC Universal uh, envisioned it? And and what does it mean from here on out? Yeah, I, you know it's an interesting question, Joe, because under Steve Burke, the former head of NBC Universal, the path or the plan for Peacock was for very moderate losses. I mean, they were planning on it never really losing more than a billion dollars. It was never sort of a chase Netflix, never lose billions of dollars. Um, undershell and you know peacock is losing two and a half billion you know there's a plan to get to profitability but you do wonder whether as new management sort of takes over at kavanaugh for the interim but i assume there'll be new management over time whether there is sort of a scaling back of ambitions i mean we've been seeing you know disney's obviously trying to move to profitability much faster you're seeing paramount i mean everyone is trying to get to profitability sooner as the street has sort of shifted from subscriber growth at any cost to a focus on can streaming be profitable you do wonder whether there could be some shift in strategy maybe a scaling back of the losses at peacock as you move through 2023 into 2024. i think about nbc universal and how uh varied and sundry it, it's it, i mean that's a that's a huge job uh in and of itself so there, it has been stated maybe that, that no one comes in or not for a while and that, that, uh, that Kavanaugh uh, oversees everything. That, that's a, that would be a big task for him. Do you think well, that that's... Uh, well, how, you, how about Joe? There, yeah. Joe, there's two big jobs out there. I mean, you're only naming the one obvious one and what happened over the weekend, but there's another massive job available, right? The future of Disney, right? I mean, who's taking over Disney? Iger is leaving in, you know, now less than 18 months. So you basically have heads of two of the largest entertainment and media companies effectively available um, over the next year. You think it's That's internal interesting. eventually, uh, Rich, at, at, at NBC? Who's, out, who's external? I'm, I mean, who's, who's well thought of like that? You know, look, there's a whole list of executives. I mean, it's funny. You probably would have put Jeff Shell on the, the list for Disney if you were building a list for Disney. I, I don't know who is going to take these jobs. I mean... I do wonder if there was going to be an internal appointment, would they have just done it over the weekend? Uh, I don't know uh, whether this sort of increases the odds that they look outside. But look, I've been talking to a lot of investors over the course of the last three or four months. Obviously, the number one topic on everyone's tongue is like, who's replacing Iger? Now that same list, in many ways, especially external people, because I think there aren't, you know, there's a couple of people internally that you could think of at Disney, but most of the names I've heard thrown about would be external people. And you wonder whether now, because of what just happened at NBC, whether those so same names get sort of repurposed into who's going to be the future of you know NBC Universal. So who are the names? 
I mean, it's sort of the challenge that you have a lot of the potential names are you have you know, older people who, you know, it's hard to see how you're naming somebody who is sort of north of 65. But, you know, you could look at names, you know, look who's left Disney over the last couple of years. Someone like a Peter Rice. Obviously, you have someone like uh, Tony Vinciquera, who's done an incredible job over at Sony. You know, do you have internal candidates? Uh, you have Mark Lazarus, you have Peter Levinson, you have a bunch of people inside of NBC Universal um, that have a tremendous amount of, you know, sort of business slash content experience. I don't know. I mean, look, this is there, there. There's not like there isn't like this short list where I go, OK, these are the two people. But remember, you know, if you think about sort of when Iger was elevated at Disney, nobody thought Iger was the obvious choice and the right choice at the time. And a lot of people question, like, was this too big of a job? He obviously crushed it and totally made the job and grabbed the you know bull by the horns and, and crushed it. When you think about sort of this job, I mean, Jeff was sort of groomed to take over, I think, in many ways, sent overseas, got a lot of different divisional experience. So I think everyone sort of knew there's no one obvious that's been groomed to take over NBC Universal. So I, I don't know. It, it is a great question, Becky. I wish I had that short list. And I think part of the reason Disney stock has right. lagged is that people can't figure out who takes over for Iger. And you look at the way he's been battling DeSantis and sort of making sort of a lot of very, you know, um, definitive decisions. Who can do that? And so the obvious answer of like who replaces someone like Bob Iger, who replaces Jeff Shell, these are, as right. you said, Joe, these are huge jobs, not easy to yeah, navigate on job. a global Plus basis. Everybody wants to watch cable again with commercials. They, 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 streaming is like, it, it's almost like too much. When do you go to the bathroom? You know what I mean? It, it, so I, I can see how someone likes the cable model. You know, he's on for a while. There's a quick little break. Go get a soda. Go, you know, you've already had a soda. Go need what you got to do. I, I don't know. Did you see that article in I the journal today? People, what is I, it? I didn't. Cable I thought, or I thought it was absolutely. What's going I thought it was win? the most ridiculous. I honestly thought it was the most ridiculous article. Honestly, I like, love Pluto. People do not want live and TV goofy. again. I love Pluto yeah. and Goofy. That All was right. it. That was a Goofy article, is what I would say. <laughs> All right, Rich. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Coming up on Squawk Pod, what we'll learn about the economy on this critical week of corporate earnings season. And J.P. Morgan's Gabriela Santos reading the market signals. Is there a slowdown ahead? The rolling impact of higher rates should be felt in the quarters ahead and specifically through a weakening in the jobs market, which ultimately impacts consumption and services. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All right, let's get back to the markets. One third of the S&P 500 set to report earnings this week. We want to bring in Gabriela Santos, who is global market strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Gabriela, you say that the economy is weaker than it seems from the, the numbers most people are looking at. I do think now that we're in this world where we've unwound the zero interest rate policy, the liquidity flush environment we had for 15 years, there's actually a lot of dispersion happening beneath the surface. And that's true when it comes to the economy, earnings, between sectors and between asset classes and regions. When we look at the economy, uh, on Thursday we'll get first quarter GDP. We do expect it to look really, really strong, over 2.5%. We'll see some weakness in the first areas that were impacted by higher rates, manufacturing, housing. We'll see some resilience within services and consumption for now. But we do think the rolling impact of higher rates should be felt in the quarters ahead and specifically through a weakening in the jobs market, which ultimately impacts consumption and services. So really kind of a high watermark for the economy at the moment. Which means what for the markets? So I think it's interesting that the discussion for the markets is the opposite, right? That the first quarter earnings season might mark a low for earnings. And to us, that doesn't quite make sense if we're describing an environment where the economy itself is at its peak strength in the first quarter and we see some deceleration and perhaps even contraction ahead. So I think that's a bit why so far we've only had 20% of companies reporting on earnings, but we've had some pretty muted reaction to earnings beats because I think there's some uncertainty about whether that consensus really makes sense or whether we're a bit too optimistic about earnings ahead, specifically at the top line, as you see some weakening in the economy, but also margins. What kind of uh, margins make sense as we're seeing some normalization in in pricing uh, ability of companies? So when we hear from companies that say that they expect to make up most of the numbers, or if they've had a miss for these quarters, they expect to make it up in the second half of the year, you don't necessarily buy what they're selling? I think it very much depends on the company, the subsector, and the sector itself. But in general, we would be skeptical of that message. And I think especially if you look ahead at the second half of the year, there's still a lot of strength embedded in those earnings estimates, an expectation that you'll go back to positive earnings growth in the third quarter and double-digit earnings growth in the fourth quarter and in 2024. We're not expecting any kind of crisis uh, in terms of earnings contraction. It's just speaking to some downside here in the U.S. And I think the dispersion is upside expected around the world. And here, speaking of Europe and emerging Asia as well, where we see upside to those earnings estimates. I mean, I've just been thinking through companies we heard from last week. You had AT&T and American Express saying that they expected to see better profitability in the second half of the year, better return to cash flow. You had a company like Procter & Gamble, which really knocked things out of the park, but they did that with the help of 10% price increases that went through. Will they be able to continue price increases? How do you break it down? How do you figure out what you like and what you don't? I think that's the issue we're having with some of those earnings estimates. Part of it is uncertainty about the real economy and the macro momentum in the second half of the year. But more than that, it's just having some difficulty figuring out what a normalized pricing environment is. 
And that includes not just your more discretionary oriented companies, but even some of your staples. Uh, what is a more normalized pricing environment? Can I ask you an equities related question though? We just okay. had someone from Goldman Sachs on the last hour. Said, could be, what did they say? 50% chance it's higher, 70% chance it's higher in total by the end of the year, mm -hmm. where the equity market is. Mm -hmm. You could have a differentiation between where you think the economy is today and where you think it's going to be 12 months from now. Do, where are you on that? Absolutely. And, and there's always a difference between the real economy right. uh, and equities, which will always anticipate the real economy. And we always mention we should never wait for the all clear in the economy to get invested in stocks. It's just that we're still in the process that you see going into right. a deceleration or recession where you get uh, an upward momentum in the unemployment rate, meaning a deceleration right. in the real economy, and you see a process of earnings downgrades, and that can be a choppy uh, process for equities. But we don't expect to test the lows that we had back in October. Okay. We do have better expectations, better pricing. It's just that we feel more conviction, actually, ex-US in this environment. And I think the story is so much more favorable than we've had in 15 years for Europe, as well as for emerging Asia. And we just advocate having a bit more uh, or closing those deep underweights that have built up for 15 well, years. If we really get two and a half, that's going to be so confusing with the GDP if we have a, a print like that. I mean, it's like, what? Recession, it's like recession, no recession, more higher rates. We've had a gazillion macro narratives I know, but, in three but, but and it a half months. A, we really do need to, uh, it takes a leap of faith to say we're really on the cusp of a recession when you have such a, Absolutely. The last three months have been nowhere nearer a recession. Oh, absolutely. It's Weird. been much more resilient than expected. And I uh, think. I don't know if we will. Do you, are you sure we're going into a slowdown? <laughs> no, we do think the probability is elevated, especially right. after the banking stress uh, that Can't we have. Can't wait for that <laughs> number, though. It's going to be a grudge, you know. The Biden administration is going to be crowing that there's no recession. So. And then maybe the second quarter we get that dip down to 1%. That's our expectation. That's not a recession, though. No, no, that would be more of a timing yeah. to the second half. That'd be pretty year. good. The Fed, that'd be the, that'd be, you know, the, the towing that, or that'd be hitting the mark for them. That'd be walking the perfect line between, us, uh, you know, curing inflation but not put pushing it. That'd be the soft landing we're looking for. A one percent. It would yeah. be subtrend but still right. positive. So let's see if that holds in the second half. We would be looking to buy actually on any strength. Uh, we see in the bond market or, or any rally we see in yields in response to those friends, kind of a last shot to add fixed income at these attractive yields and really focusing on reinvestment risk for the second half of the year. Gabriella, thank you very much. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, state financial officials taking a political stand and making a profit. The legality, the ethics, and those doing it with CNBC reporter Brian Schwartz. The officials every year, you know, file these things, but the public really doesn't always get to see, depending on the state, these disclosures. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, 
positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Up and Andrew, Hugh. In the last year, a number of states have combined to put billions or pull billions of dollars, really, uh, in investments from BlackRock as part of that fight over ESG investing. These actions being taken at the state level by state treasurers and chief financial officers. CBC's Brian Schwartz has a piece on our website this morning looking at uh, those who are the officials and where they're investing their personal money and who they take uh, campaign contributions from. It's a little bit ironic. Yes, indeed. Uh, ethical questions uh, around private stock ownership and public influence is not just a buzz in Congress. It is a concern on the state level as well. Uh, CNBC has learned a group of Republican lawmakers responsible for their state finances and staunch defenders of the fossil fuel industry are attacking ESG investments. Right. Uh, or really, they're also holding a personal stake in the fossil fuel business. Troves of financial disclosures show that since 2020, state leaders, for example, Scott Fitzpatrick in Missouri and Glenn Hager in Texas, own stocks, bonds, or other equity interests in companies like Chevron and ConocoPhillips. Some have even received political donations from the fossil fuel world as they move to take part in battling environmentally, socially conscious investing. These lawmakers signed a letter to the banking industry in 2021. In part, it said, we will take concrete steps within our respective authority to select financial institutions that support a free market and are not engaged in harmful fossil fuel boycotts for our state's financial services contracts. Ethical legal experts say owning such stock is not illegal. In fact, when asked about any potential conflict, a spokesman for Fitzpatrick responded, other than employer-sponsored retirement accounts, all of Otter Fitzpatrick's traded securities are held in a trust or in a qualified blind trust retirement account. A financial advisor to whom he gives no direction helps him select these stocks and, and to move forward in that direction. Right. Other ethic experts note holding fossil fuel stocks can appear as a potential conflict for powerful public officials as they stand with the industry. What is the policy? I did not know this. If you are a public pension um, manager in this country, is it state by state? What are the rules around owning equities yourself? Well, there really is no strong regulations at the state level on who and how these folks can own and purchase stocks while they're going about. But do other states have do do certain states have certain rules that say you can't own anything? You can only own indexes and other states say you can do whatever you want. Well, I think that it's for the most part, I think it's pretty free wielding, free wielding, to be honest with you. I mean, I haven't found a state that says that says you can't own even a certain type of stock or certain focus on a certain type of industry. Yeah, I I really haven't. And particularly the, the, the states that we focus on in this particular story, which, you know, we mentioned about four, but we saw we were look at over half a dozen, if not more, of these states where these leaders are focusing on, you know, defending the fossil fuel industry and taking on ESG investments. Right, but I'm taking this to a whole other place, which is to say, if you if you're CalPERS, let's just say, which ostensibly could move the market on any given stock if you knew that they were going to make a big uh, investment in a particular company. Now we get into sort of insider trading issues, which is to say, if I knew that we were going to buy Chevron uh, in three weeks from now, and I bought Chevron today, that would be a problem. Is anybody looking at this? Well, I, I'm not sure if there's anybody's sort of investigation into this, but I do think it's a fair question to, to ask, right? It's this real potential conflict with, again, at a state level. These people have a lot of power, and they can, you know, get some sort of information from various meetings, and potentially that could impact how they go, go about purchasing. That seems like a different 
um, set of circumstances. This is something more like Congress being held to some sort of accounting rules or some sort of rules for disclosure when you're going to be voting on it. I mean, exactly right. There's a little different. Well, no, but also at the, at the, to that same point, at the state level, which we're, we're just kind of talking about this here about what's required and what's not. There really isn't any concrete requirements for people to say, "Hey, I, I traded on this stock." But these are publicly go. available yes. records so, on these things, and, and that's even with kind of an asterisk in itself, right? So we had to go to certain state offices to get them to give the give us these documents. So the officials right. every year, you know, file these things, but the public really doesn't always get to see, depending on the state, right. these disclosures. The, the reason I raise, you know, we just had the the, the New York Comptroller on who's complaining about Tesla, sending a letter to the board of Tesla. The New York City's five pension funds hold over $750 million in Tesla stock. Um, for a long time, we saw it as something that was adding a lot of value, has been adding a lot of value to our portfolio. Uh, but we're concerned with uh, the CEO's attention seeming to be focused much more on Twitter and on SpaceX than on Tesla, as it's facing severe challenges in the marketplace. And we need a CEO that's focused on the company. If in fact, and I'm not suggesting he is, but and if, if in fact he owns shares in General Motors personally, right. you'd want to know that. Right. 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 Absolutely. No, 100%. Right. You're right. And I think that uh, that's where when you look at lawmakers on the Hill, we've talked about this before, people at the state level who we're really we're talking about the executive level of the, of right. the state. Right. They're not talking about just state lawmakers, uh, you know, who are working in House and state Senate. These are people who are yeah. full time jobs right. and they potentially have stock or some right. sort of interest in these businesses. I mean, how, how long is the Texas guy? Well, he's in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm shocked. He owned the whole company. But I wonder how long he's owned it, and uh, I'd have to commend him. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the, this was... He's done pretty well with it. The, the, the disclosure we found was from... It ended in, in late 2021, so December, last right. day of December. But that was the first time that we found that he was actually owning this. And, of okay. course, that coincides with him going after ESG investments. Right. Oh, but he could have had it before then. He, well, he could have, but I think, I think the, the, the law at the you state think requires that there, you to I, I mean, I, I, it, it, I, I don't the, the, To say he bought Exxon because he knows he's going to go after the ESG. Well, I must say he does. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Right. I, I don't know. The whole well, my, thing seems like a stretch to me. Right. But doesn't it undermine the... To me, there's a All whole separate does, issue. But, I mean, think it of undermines the credibility right. of... And what I don't understand... And I would say this, if Gary Gensler's watching, uh, if Jay Clayton was in charge of it back then on the other side of the different aisle, why the SEC, which could issue guidance around these issues of, of politically uh, important people, if you will, and what they should do or what they shouldn't do. The reason they don't do this is because Congress is the one that, that funds them. No, no, this is the issue. But you would think that actually if, if Gary Gensler cared about the credibility of the markets, which is his job, this is what undermines the credibility of the markets. And he could easily issue guidance and say, we're going to start investigating all of these things and we're telling you not to do this. And if you do, we're going to come after you. I don't understand why they don't do that. I mean, I do, unfortunately. Yeah. That's Squawk Pod for today, this Monday. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. Now we are clear. Thanks, guys. This 
podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.